Welcome to the AHA Process webinar podcast series. To view the webinar with video, please visit ahaprocess.com. In this installment, AHA Process founder Ruby Payne addresses the effects of high poverty neighborhoods. Let's join her now. First of all, I, it's a pleasure for me to be with you today, and I'm so delighted you joined us. And I'm going to talk about uh, something very close to my heart, which is what's happening uh, in our communities. And many of you are familiar with the Framework for Understanding Poverty book. Let me tell you what led us to where we are right now. I've been working uh, since 2000, Phil Duvall and Terry Drusy Smith, Jody Farr, others, have been working on the community side of um, the framework. And as they began working on the community side, they began to involve communities in the whole issue on poverty. And what happened was I had been going to Memphis, Tennessee, and there's a, a foundation there, a CC foundation, and the woman who runs it is phenomenal. She is Asian and African-American. She's a two-star retired general in the military, Army. She has a PhD in nursing, and she runs a foundation that has $200 million in assets. She's formidable. And she brings me back every year to speak to a group of four or 500 resourced people in Memphis. And one year, about three years ago, she said to me, Ruby, I don't invite educators. I about had a heart attack. I said, you don't invite educators? She said, no, Ruby, I don't. She said, I want to tell you why. We have invested in schools and invested in schools. They do the program we've invested in for two to three years. They get a new superintendent. They drop everything and start over. She said, what we are doing is we're taking children from unstable back environments where there's not a lot of stability and predictability. We're putting them in institutions that are unstable and unpredictable. And then we wonder why we don't get results. She said, so I started looking. And what happens in a community where children are well-educated is that the adults in the community, the resourced adults, insist upon it. She said, I'm going to educate the resourced adults so that we have better community support and stabilize the institution. It really made me think. And then I did a book for American middle level educators. It was called Achievement for All. And they asked me to look at adolescents. What happened to them developmentally? Then what happened to them when they came from poverty? And one of the statistics I found that absolutely stunned me, because it's in the developmental research and not the educational research, is this simple thing. Let me ask you. What do you think is one of the greatest predictors about whether or not you finish high school? I was stunned. You know what it was? Whether or not you go through puberty two years or more ahead of your peers. The stats for both males and females are abysmal. For males, it's early gang activity, early criminal activity, violence, for Girls, it's early pregnancy, early sexual abuse, cutting. It was unbelievable. 
And I started thinking about that. And it led me to realize that, and African Americans hit puberty earlier because of genetics. Kids in poverty hit puberty earlier because of diet and stressors. And I was like, really? And so I started thinking a lot about neighborhood effects and developmental issues and adolescence. And what I did was I realized that we actually have an elephant in the room in the United States. And the elephant we have in the room is neighborhood effects. We don't talk about them. We pretend they don't exist. So let me show you, and I think we don't talk about them because we don't know what to do about it. And actually, we do. So that's what I want to share with you uh, and why it becomes so critical, not only for schools, school boards, but neighborhoods. And so let me go through this with you as we begin to look at this issue. Many of you know this book, okay? We, this was the framework book on the school side. We, we went to the community side with Bridges Out of Poverty for the resource. And by resource people, I mean people who have the resources to be self-sufficient. Getting ahead was for people who wanted to develop more resources, were under-resourced. And one of the things that we did is we started looking at how do we begin to address neighborhoods. And as you know, there are neighborhood effects in poverty, and they're well documented. Okay? But the average student only has 1,150 waking hours a year in school, but they have 4,700 waking hours a year outside of school. And most schools only provide parent training through the sixth, fifth or sixth grade. When the kid hits adolescent, they're done. But the, ad, but the peer and neighborhood impact on adolescents is phenomenal. And the issue is simply schools cannot buffer neighborhood effects alone. They can't do it. And so how do we begin thinking about this? There's a lot of research about what neighborhood effects do. Uh, but what they found was this in the research, those of you who know about the ACE research, that the one thing that would ameliorate any race, all the impacts of poverty, violence, crime, prison, etc., was a nurturing, caring relationship. And the effect was biochemical. So, who will buffer children? in poverty. One of the reasons we have never discussed this very much or that we get, we only get to a certain, we discuss poverty a lot, but one of the reasons we get stymied is that people start arguing in your community about what caused poverty and they never get any further. See, all disciplines move through three stages. They go from classification where you name things to correlation to you say how they act together, causation what causes it. When we first noticed the stars, we named it. We called it astrology. Then Galileo came along and said, there's actually a reason for it. That became astronomy. He said, there's a correlation there. They moved together. And then Newton came along and said, there's a reason for it. Gravity, which is physics. Well, in the field of sociology, the research base is stuck in correlation. 
And there's a woman out of Stanford University who's written a book reviewing all the research bases that have been identified with poverty. And they fall into four categories. Each category is well-researched. But the problem is they've been politicized. And in this current political election, this is first and foremost in much of the discussion. Cause. So the first cause is the behaviors of the individual. The second cause is human and social capital in the community, which means jobs. The third one is exploitation, sexism, racism, predators. The last one is political and economic structures. Like, for example, many, many high poverty households take the child's social security number to get the utilities turned back on. When that child turns 18, the credit room on their, on their social security number is ruined. Almost all employers right now, when they do a employment check, use the social security number for criminal past and many employers will not hire if the credit rating is bad. That's a systemic thing. Now, if you are on the political right, you think it's the first two causes. You think it's about jobs and individual behaviors. If you're on the political left, you think it's about exploitation, racism, sexism, and the government procedures, policies, laws. So what happens in a community and in your school district and in your institution is people start fighting about that causation. And when we work with communities, we say this to communities. Actually, all four of those are at the table and they all four contribute. And unless you address all four of them, you're never ever really gonna move the needle. Well, what happens now is that as we begin to look at poverty, we define it as a set of resources. Why do we use resources? Because not having any one of these resources destabilizes your environment. Everyone listening to me right now knows somebody who has destabilized their whole environment because of an emotional issue, be it mental illness, an anger problem, an addiction problem. Everybody in this room knows somebody whose reality has been totally destabilized by a physical issue, cancer, any number of things. 75% like of bankruptcies in America are related to a medical issue. And so any one of these has the ability to destabilize an environment. You see, if we define poverty just by income, there's only one solution, more money. But when you begin to realize it's much more complicated than that, it's about a package of resources. For example, in Hurricane Katrina, New York Times did a study of who made it out of the high poverty neighborhoods versus who did not, okay? And the group that made it out even though both of these groups were poor financially, the group that was able to get out of the neighborhood safely was the group that had more social capital, support systems. So we know they're critical in survival. 
Well, we're going to look at class from a, a cognitive issue, how you think, okay? Because part of the issue of stabilizing any reality is partly how you think and how the environment teaches you to think. There's a marriage between the relationships and knowledge base that you have, what your resources are, and what the environment demands from you to survive. Certain environments demand things from you to survive. And the fewer your resources, the more demanding the environment is cognitively. In fact, the research is that high poverty environments, lower IQ by 13% simply because Cause. There are so many demands on the cognitive brain. And regardless of where you are in America or in the world, I speak all over the world, the fewer the resources you have, the more you live on the left-hand side of the chart, the more resources you have, the more you live on the right-hand side of the chart. And we're going to define middle class is when your resource base is stable. You know where you're going to sleep at night. You know you have food. And so what we say is there's this, there's this continuum that operates. But the fewer the resources you have, the more difficult it becomes to plan. Why is it true that the fewer the resources you have, the more difficult it is to plan? The problem is this. You... Institutions and interfacing with institutions require that you plan. And so it's this huge issue. Another issue that happens in poverty environments around the world, poverty tends to be feminized. But a pattern that happens as well is that men do not have work or have only intermittent work. There's a brilliant African-American sociologist out of Harvard. His last name is Wilson. He says this. If you want to break a culture, all you have to do is take work away from men because it changes identity. I am very, very concerned about the men in America right now. 30% of adult men of working age in the bottom 20% of households do not work. So what happens then is that in these environments, we switched environments economically, and that's another factor in our growing poverty. When we were agrarian, we represented wealth with a paper, on paper called a deed. And you took that deed to the bank and borrowed money. When we became industrial, we took that same concept across, but we called it a stock certificate. But in both the agrarian and the industrial society, you did not have to go to school to be able to make a living. Now we're in a knowledge-based economy. The business community calls it intellectual capital. And the problem is nobody, and I mean nobody, knows how you represent intellectual capital on paper. Patents, copyrights. The closest we have to it is whether or not you have a college degree. But everybody in this room every day works with people who have college degree and they don't have any intellectual capital. So it's not a very good indicator. 
But the point is, you have to go to school now to make any kind of a living. And knowledge is now a key form of privilege. As is social access, race, and money. But how you spend your time determines what you know. See, the one way we're all alike in the world is we all have 24 hours a day, period. And so how we marry that time with the resources indicates the extent to which we're going to have stability in our environment. And how we spend our time determines what we know. What you have in front of you is a compilation of what 300 adults in poverty say they spend their time on. We have a program called Getting Ahead in a Getting By World that we have had 40,000 adults in poverty go through. They are the experts in poverty because they live it every day. Most people see people in poverty as problems, and we do not. We see them as problem solvers. Anyone who can live on such limited resources has to be a, a problem solver. So we say to them, how do you spend your time? This is what a compilation of 300 adults in poverty tell us they spend their time on. What do you see on this chart that would not be on your own chart? Agency time is the amount of time you spend going to agencies for help. Okay. The next chart is what people in stable households, middle class if you were, well, we don't like to use money because in America class, anywhere from 40,000 to 150,000 is considered middle class. So we're looking at stability. This is what happens when you're in a stable household. This is what you spend your time on, a stable environment. What do you see on this chart you did not see on the first chart? And then the next chart is what people in wealth. By wealth, I mean the top 1% of households, which is $7.8 million net worth or more. This is what they say spend, they spend their time on. What do you see on this chart you did not see on the first chart? Here's the point of this whole exercise. All three circles are in your community. All three circles are on your school board. All three circles are making decisions about your community. Every circle believes that they have the only reality. That their reality is the best and each of these circles is an environment in which people learn how to negotiate that environment whatever's in the middle of the circle stabilizes that circle so i had a congressman say to me ruby there's no difference between relationships and connections i said there's a world of difference between relationships and connections relationships help you get by connections help you get ahead. Right now, for every person in poverty in America, they get $14,000 a year in federal and state government supports. So if you have a million people in your community, that means that they got $2.1 billion worth of revenue.
I'm not saying they shouldn't have it. What I'm saying is they are involved. They are involved in the community. And so they are not involved in conversation, but they're involved in the dynamics of the community. And so one of the things is they're all there. And they're all negotiating environments. And out of these environments come in rules. And I had a woman in wealth say to me after a meeting, she said, Ruby, you don't have children on this chart. I said, you're right, I don't. But I said, remember, she said, children are very important in wealth. And I said, that's correct. She said, I said, but these charts are not what's important to you. These charts are about what you spend your time on. And they are. They're not on here because the children in poverty are the children, I'm sorry, the children in wealth are being taken care of by someone else. And so I hope everybody in this audience will forgive me a little bit because I'm going really fast because I have an hour and I'm um, not doing all the nuances of everything. Well, we know that out of these environments then come hidden rules, okay? And people follow these hidden rules because they help them survive an environment. We know the difference one person makes. So here's what's happening and here's how we're gonna recommend that you begin to address neighborhood effects. But I wanna say one thing about one of the hidden rules and a little bit about my critics. I have critics who don't like the hidden rules because they say they're stereotypes. They're not, they're, they're patterns, okay? They're patterns people use to survive an environment and not everybody in the environment follows those patterns. But all groups have patterns um, and stereotyping occurs when you apply the patterns of the group to everyone in the group. We're not doing that. But if you're in this environment here that's on your screen, what this environment does is they, to stabilize their environment, they spend their time on three things, work, achievement, and material security. So their time, they go to work, they go to school to get a better job, okay? And they buy things that turn into an asset, like a mortgage, material security. And they have four rules about money. I'm gonna start the rule, you can finish the rule. Number one, I don't ask you for money, you don't ask me. Number two, if you borrow, you what? I'm waiting for somebody to put it in the chat room. You gotta pay it back, okay? The third rule is this, you never ever quit a job until Yeah, you have another one. And the fourth rule is this. You don't talk about your salary. You're allowed to say what you do, but not how much you make. But if you are in wealth, you have a different problem. Your problem this time is you have too much. You can't take care of it by yourself. And what happens, it makes you very vulnerable at a personal safety level at a personal safety level, you rely upon your connections 
to begin to um, keep things safe. You see, you have so many resources, you have to pay people to help you. And that makes you vulnerable. If you, if you, you can be robbed, you can be kidnapped. If you have a business, you have to have help. If you have a 15,000 square foot home, you have to have help. And so what happens in wealth is that decision-making is made against your financial, your social, and your political connections because they keep you safe, which leads to another hidden rule. When you go to a party among the truly wealthy, you never introduce yourself. You are introduced. And if you introduce yourself, they'll, they'll walk away. You're introduced. This is so-and-so with such-and-such a firm or a foundation or a family. And what's the rule about money? The rule about money is you do not talk about the cost of an individual item. It's just not necessary. It's probably a one-of-a-kind object anyway. But if you were in poverty and you've been there, then you have a different problem again particularly if you've been there two generations or more, because you don't have material security. You have a few things, okay? My brother in Ohio, he made the slide to extreme instability in 10 years. He lost his farm in the 80s because it was a brutal time to farm. He bounced around with employment for two to three years. During that time, they had a severely handicapped child. Um, he's 23 now and he cannot feed himself, which knocked a wage earner out of the household. Then my brother got sick, but he didn't go to the doctor. Now he, he's got a degenerative illness that is so advanced, he can't work. And a year and a half ago, two years ago, he got liver cancer and he's dying. He cannot take any more chemo. So I pay for where he lives. I give him money each month. I have a, sibling, a sister who gives him money. I have a brother who pays for his gasoline. Another sister who pays his utilities. We all got together and bought him a vehicle. But he doesn't make his decisions against work and achievement and material security. He makes his decisions against survival, relationships, because people keep him alive not work, and entertainment, because entertainment takes away the pain. And what's the rule about money? If I have any, and you ask me for some, we have to share. So what that means is that money is shared. People say to me, I don't understand why you share money. It's easy. In a stable environment, if your car breaks down on the highway, you call AAA. In generational poverty, you call Uncle Ray. And if Uncle Ray asked to borrow your food stamps and you said no, what's he going to say to you when you ask him for help with your car? No. So it, the rules are so different. And they're all in your community in one place or another. So how do you begin then? To move it along. And that's what I want to talk about. Focus first on the school and then the larger community. What you hear over and over again in schools is this. We're doing a great job. And then they go home. I want to use an analogy with you. 
if we wanted to lower highway fatalities, what we would do is we would test the drivers, we would inspect the vehicles, and we'd fix the roads. There was a man in California in the 1960s. He argued that we could reduce highway fatalities significantly if we would just paint white lines on the roads. Everybody laughed at him. And finally, he went out, bought paint, and painted a 20-mile stretch of I-5. And the fatalities of, of the what has become I-5, the road along the, the coast, fatalities reduced. Now, if we wanted to lower highway fatalities, we would inspect the drivers, test the drivers, inspect the vehicles, and fix the roads. Now in the school business, if we want to improve educational outcomes, what do we do? Well, we test the drivers, all right. We test the students to death, okay? We inspect schools. Accountability is way out, way over, okay? And we do nothing to fix the roads, and the roads are neighborhood effects. What we say to kids from high poverty unstable neighborhoods where there's all kinds of adverse impacts we say hey we want you to go the same speed as the kid who lives on an interstate because we're going to test you meanwhile we don't want to fix the roads and we don't want to fix the roads because we don't think we can we don't know we can and we can't so how do you do it? Well, we do it this way. We do a three-prong approach and we work with neighborhoods. And I want to talk about it. Okay. But before I talk about how we do it, I want to say this. Why would you even care? Why does it matter? It matters because there's something operating under the table called a multiplier effect. Now, before I go any further, I had an actuary help me with this, but I need you to repeat after me, okay? And if, if you wish to put, I'm not being adamant or mean about this. I, I just don't want to hear back that I, this is not a population growth chart. It's just not, okay? It's a multiplier chart. And what it looks at is what how people have children by educational attainment. Basically, what we know is this, and there's an article you can download on the webpage called The Cost of Poverty to a Community, okay? What it is is this. If you're an educated female in America and you have a college degree, the research is you have your first child at 30 years old and you have 1.1 children. Now, in 90 years, that's a three-generation repeat. So in 90 years, three generations at 1.1 children is 3.3 children. But in America, if you're a female, have no GED and no high school diploma, the research is that you have children in your teens, you start them, and you have on the average 2.5 children. In 90 years, that's five generations, and it is a multiplier. 
So at the end of 90 years, it's 48.6 children. People ask me all the time, why is poverty growing? And only 11% of adults in the bottom 20% of the household actually get a college degree, a bachelor's so what do you do about it well first of all you have to build a community infrastructure and that's what i'm going to talk about you see eisenhower when he came back from world war ii he knew that the reason the only reason the allies beat the nazis is they had a better supply chain the allies were able to get their food and water to the troops before they got there the nazis got it there two weeks after they did and many of their troops starved when Eisenhower came back to the United States, he pushed and built the interstate system. The first one was the Pennsylvania Turnpike, and it was a toll road because that was the only way he could get it financed and done. And now it's everywhere. And it has allowed the industrial economy to flourish. We are now in a knowledge-based economy, and we don't have an infrastructure build human capacity other than K through 12 schooling. If you get schooling after that, you have to pay for it. And communities don't know they need an infrastructure. What we have right now in most communities is a getting by, a safety net. They have a safety net, food banks. housing systems, but there's no network, no infrastructure for getting ahead. And what happened is this. What Stanford Social what Stanford University says, the Stanford Social Innovation Review, it says this. If you want to make poverty initiatives work, you have to do both technical and cognitive approaches. Technical is like housing, transportation, etc. Cognitive approaches are when you work with how people think. One of the most interesting things that happened in Baltimore between 1995 and about 2005, that 10 year frame, they put 130 million, this is the neighborhood Freddie Gray came from, they put 130 million dollars worth of infrastructure in there but it was all technical housing jobs training um, transportation and what the social integration stanford social innovation review said was this it's legendary legendary how often putting money in makes no change because as soon as the technical the money for the technical is gone. What happens is this. But people don't like to do the cognitive piece because it takes longer and it's harder to measure. But all thinking, all change occurs cognitively in the thinking as well as the external. And so what kind of results do we get? I'll come back to that. So what we do in our model is that we begin to do both the technical and the cognitive, and we have a model 
that looks like this. I'm going to jump through this one. And I'm going to go to the one that David has on the side. We use this model to build a community infrastructure. And I like to talk about it just a little bit. Because what it has is three pillars. It's got an individual one, it's got an institutional one, and a community one. And the first level is the foundation. What happens is this. The foundation is we do bridges training with the resource because they need to understand what it's like, the reality of when you're under-resourced because they're making all the decisions and they're creating the barriers. And one of the things that Dana and Carol are both saying in the chat box is that we resourced people make decisions without ever involving the under-resourced based on a reality we understand, which may or may not be accurate. So what we do is we educate the resourced. Unlike other poverty approaches, we make sure resource people know the reality and we name it. And then we give people who are under-resourced the knowledge basis to negotiate any environment. One of the things that happens when you're in poverty, you get isolated by money, by time, by place. The interstates go through your neighborhood and you're isolated. And the access to information gets limited. So we want them to have information. They're problem solvers. So foundation part one is bridges training and getting ahead. But at the institutional level, we do board selection and training. In other words, if you're on a board, are you knowledgeable about the reality that you're, you're making recommendations for? And at the community level, do you have a group who's actually interested in moving the community and represents the community at all three circles? Then when you get the application, we go the next level up at the individual, at the institutional and at the community level. And then we do it again for sustainability at all three levels. And what happens then, this builds a community at the very top of philanthropy, policy, quality of life. People are at the table making decisions, both under-resourced and resourced. People have, it becomes an infrastructure for individuals to move, operate, and change the paradigms. And why would you want to do this? Because it's about human capacity and human talent. If we can go back to the other PowerPoint now, David, that would be great. And so, here's a chart about what the government has spent on programs in poverty from 1960 to 2014. It was compiled in January of 2018. And it's federal programs also, all, only. And what has happened is the federal safety net. And what has happened is that poverty rate has stayed fairly stable around 15%. But the amount of money has been increasing. And the average amount now is $14,400. If you look at this chart, 
you can see, sorry, it's 14,200 approximately. You can see what's happening with the total population and the total numbers of people in poverty. The welfare expenditures, the federal safety net, adjusted for inflation. And what that means is this, that for every million people in a community, 15% of them are in the safety net, which is a minimum of $2.1 billion a year, just federal dollars. Now, people say to me, we can't afford to address it. We can't do anything about it. And I'm going to say, you're right. You can't continue to exponentially give that kind of money. But you can give knowledge. One community we work with did this. And in eight years, because cognitive approaches take longer, in eight years, they lowered their poverty rate by 7% in the whole community using bridges and getting ahead. Think about that. In a million where for a million people, it means that when you lower it by eight percent, you have lowered it by eight by a significant amount of money. We're working with one community right now. They have twenty one percent poverty in this community. They have a million people in that community. If they just lower their poverty rate by 7%, it saves them $240 million a year. But more importantly than that, it gives all the people who made those, that knowledge and was, were able to use it, it changes their lives. It gives them hope. It stabilizes their reality. And so what we're going to say is we do getting ahead. It's a it's an approach with the adults in poverty who 16 lessons, we pay them to come because learning is important. They become investigators and they end with a future story. We have done it over 330 communities, 40,000 adults. We just finished a study, University of Indiana Social Work. They found that against 29 indicators, 27 of the 29 indicators in thinking statistically significantly changed in a positive direction. We know it works. We have all kinds of results. More employment, more hope, a future story. But what it does is it changes how they parent their children. When you give a person capacity for themselves, it bleeds off into all the people they know. And they can buffer their children. Like one woman said to me in Memphis, she said, I raised my two sons. I had no idea that you were supposed to do this. Now I'm raising my two grandsons. She said, I'm telling you, I'm doing it differently. They both have a future story because I have one. We talk about what they want to do with their life and where they're going to go and what they're going to do. And she at 55 went back to community college and took a class. It is phenomenal. If you're interested, we can talk to you about how you do this because we've done it and we know how to do it. And I'll say to you, those of you in the school district, if you just take your Title I dollars and you start bringing your community along with you, it will change everything. 
It will change how your bonds get passed. It will change your dropout rates. It will make a huge difference. So I'll say this to you. If for $40,000 or $50,000 a year, depending on how you, you frame it, you are able in three years to significantly get your community thinking about things differently, and in eight years or nine years, lower your poverty rate, as Muskogee, Oklahoma did, it's amazing. It takes longer, but it's our great hope. Because without this abstract infrastructure, we will not, as a country, be able to survive. So, if you would like to know more, here's how you do it. I have about 10 minutes left. That was a race. Um, Carol, the question is, what do you do in a community that's ruled mostly by middle and wealthy classes? I ask them two questions. Do they want their real estate values to stay stable? And number two, do they want their children to be able to come back and live there and work? I agree with you, Dana. You, you have to be an incredible problem solver. It's the knowledge bases that institutions expect you to have are not necessarily always available. Doesn't mean that you're deficit. It means that the environment provides these incredible survival skills that are not always everything you need. It's like if you grew up in farm country, you probably don't know how to swim. If you move to the coast, you've got to know how to swim. Environments shape a lot of realities. Kim, how do you identify key people? You go to people in the community who you think are key and you say to them, who do you think are the 10 most influential people in the community? and you tally their names. Then you go to those people and you say, hey, you've been named as one of the most influential people in the community. Could I have lunch with you? And then when you have lunch with them, you say, who do you think are the most influential people in the community? And you tally a list, and that's how you find out. Resource people, I mean anywhere in the whole community. They're people who are self-sufficient with their own resources. Well, actually, there, the thinking out there is that the 1% benefits, but actually, when you look at the amount of money that goes back into the community to, to provide getting by support uh, without building capacity, it's actually very expensive to the whole community. Um, and so they don't know that. Thank you so much for attending. So this has been an AHA Process webinar podcast. Visit ahaprocess.com for more. Royalty-free music courtesy of sound.com.